Password Manager Cracks, Login Bugs, and Queen Elizabeth I versus Mary Queen of Scots, of course. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how do you do? Wow, 16th century information technology skullduggery meets the Naked Security Podcast, Douglas. I can't wait! Obviously. Yes, we'll get to that shortly. But first, as always, this week in tech history, on May 28th, 1987, online service provider CompuServe released a little something called the Graphics Interchange Format, or GIF. It was developed by the late Steve Wilhite, an engineer at CompuServe, who, by the way, swore up and down it was pronounced GIF, as a means to support color images on the limited bandwidth and storage capacities of early computer networks. The initial version, GIF 87A, supported a maximum of 256 colors. It quickly gained popularity due to its ability to display simple animations and its widespread support across different computer systems. Thank you, Mr. Wilhite. And what has it left us, Douglas? Web animations and controversy over whether the word is pronounced graphics or graphics. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I, I just can't not call it GIF. Same. Let's stamp that and move on to our exciting story about Queen Elizabeth I, Mary Queen of Scots, and a man playing both sides between ransomware crooks and his employer, Paul. Uh, <laughs> let's start at the end of the story. Basically, it was a ransomware attack against a technology company in Oxfordshire in England. Not this one. It was one in Oxford, 15 kilometres upriver from Abingdon-on-Thames, where Sophos is based. And after being hit by ransomware, they were, as you can imagine, hit up with a demand to pay Bitcoin to get their data back. And like that story we had a couple of weeks ago, one of their own defensive team who was supposed to be helping to deal with this figured out, I'm going to run an MITM, a man-in-the-middle attack. And I know that to avoid gendered language and to reflect the fact that it's not always a person, it's often a computer in the middle these days, on Naked Security, I now write manipulator in the middle. This was literally a man in the middle. Simply put, Doug, he managed to start emailing his employer from home using a sort of typo squat email account that was kind of like the crooks. And he hijacked the thread and changed the Bitcoin address in the historical email traces because he had access to senior execs' email accounts and basically started negotiating as a man in the middle. So you imagine he's negotiating individually now with the crook and then he's passing that (laughs) negotiation on to his employer. We don't know whether he was hoping to run off with all of the bounty and then just tell his employer, hey, guess what? The crooks cheated us. Or what he wanted to do was negotiate the crooks down on his end and his employer up on the other end because he was he knew all the, the right slash wrong things to say to increase the fear and the terror inside the company. And so his goal was basically to, to hijack the ransomware payment. Well, Doug, it all went a little bit pear-shaped because unfortunately for him and fortunately for his employer and for law enforcement, the company decided not to pay up. (laughs) Uh So 
there was no Bitcoin for him to steal and then cut and run. Also, it seems that he did not hide his traces very well, and his unlawful access to the email logs then came out in the wash. He obviously knew that the cops were closing in on him because he tried to wipe the rogue data off his own computers and phones at home, but they were seized and the data was recovered. And somehow the case dragged on for five years. And finally, just as he was about to go to trial, he obviously decided that he didn't really have a leg to stand on and he pleaded guilty. So there you have it, Doug. A literal man in the middle attack. Okay, so that's all well and good in 2023, but take us back to the 1580s, Paul. What about Mary Queen of Scots and Queen Elizabeth I? Well, to be honest, I just thought that was a great way of explaining a man in the middle attack by going back all those years, because famously, Queen Elizabeth and her cousin Mary, Queen of Scots, were religious and political enemies. Elizabeth was the queen. Mary was pretender to the throne. So Mary was effectively detained under house arrest. She was living in some luxury, but confined to a castle. And Mary was actually plotting against her cousin, but they couldn't prove it. And Mary was sending and receiving messages stuffed into the bung of beer barrels delivered to the castle, apparently. In this case, the man in the middle was a compliant beer supplier who would remove the messages before Mary got them so they could be copied and would insert replacement messages encrypted with Mary's cipher with subtle changes that, loosely speaking, eventually persuaded Mary to put in writing more than she probably should have. So she not only gave away the names of other conspirators, she also indicated that she approved of the plot to assassinate Queen Elizabeth. And uh, they were tougher times then, and England certainly had the death penalty in those days, and Mary was tried and executed. Okay, so uh, for anyone listening, the elevator pitch for this podcast is cybersecurity news and advice and a little sprinkle of history. Back to our uh, man in the middle in the current day, we talked about another insider threat just like this uh, not too long ago. So it's uh, be interesting to see if this is a pattern or if this is just a coincidence. But we talked about some things you can do to protect yourself against these types of attack. So let's go over those quickly again, starting with divide and conquer, which basically means don't give one person in the company unfettered access to everything, Paul. Yes. And then we've got keep immutable logs which looked like it happened in this case, right? Yes. It seems that a key element of evidence in this case was the fact that he'd been digging into senior execs' emails and changing them, and he was unable to hide that. So you imagine, even without the other evidence, the fact that he was messing with emails that specifically related to ransomware negotiations and Bitcoin addresses would be extra super suspicious. Okay, and then finally, always measure never assume. Indeed. Good Guys won eventually took five years, but we did it. Let's move on to our next story. Web security company finds a login bug in an app building toolkit. The bug is fixed quickly and transparently, so that's nice, but there's a bit more to the story, of course, Paul. Yes, this is a web coding security analysis company. I hope I've picked the right terminology there, called Salt, and they found an authentication vulnerability in an app building toolkit called Expo. And bless their hearts, Expo support a thing called OAuth, the Open 
authorization system. And that is the sort of system that is used when you go to a website that has decided, you know what, we don't want the hassle of trying to learn how to do password security for ourselves. What we're going to do is we're going to say, log in with Google, log in with Facebook, something like that. And the idea is that, loosely speaking, you contact Facebook or Google or whatever the, the mainstream service is, and you say, hey, I want to give example.com permission to do X. And so Facebook or Google or whatever authenticates you and then says, okay, here's a magic code that you can give to the other end that says, we have checked you out, you've authenticated with us, and this is your authentication token. And then the other end independently can check with Facebook or Google or whatever to make sure that that token was issued on behalf of you. So what that means is you never need to hand over any password to the site. And you're, if you like co-opting Facebook or Google to do the actual authentication part for you. So it's a great idea if you're a boutique website and you think, I'm not going to knit my own cryptography. So this is not a bug in OAuth. It's just an oversight, something that was forgotten in Expo's implementation of the OAuth process. And loosely speaking, Doug, it goes like this. The Expo code creates a giant URL that includes all the parameters that are needed for authenticating with Facebook and then deciding where that final magic access token should be sent. And therefore, in theory, if you constructed your own URL or you were able to modify the URL, you could change the place where this magic authentication token finally got sent. But you wouldn't be able to deceive the user because a dialogue appears that says the at, at URL here is asking you to sign into your Facebook account. Do you fully trust this and want to let it do so? Yes or no? But when it came to the point of receiving the authorization code from Facebook or Google or whatever and passing it on to this return URL, the Expo code would not check that you had actually clicked yes on the approval dialogue. So if you actively saw the dialogue and clicked no, then you would prevent the attack from happening. But essentially, this failed open. If you never saw the dialogue, so you wouldn't even know that there was something to click and you just did nothing. And then the attackers simply triggered the next URL visit by themselves with more JavaScript, then the system would work. And the reason it worked is that that magic return URL, the place where the super secret code was to be sent, was set in a web cookie for Expo to use later before you clicked yes on the dialogue. And later on, the existence of that return URL cookie was essentially taken, if you like, as proof that you must have seen the dialogue and you must have decided to go ahead. Whereas, in fact, that was not the case. So it was a huge slip, twixt, cup and lip, Douglas. OK, and we have some tips, starting with uh, when it came to reporting and uh, disclosing this bug. This was a textbook case. This is a Almost exactly how you should do it, Paul. Everything just worked as it should. So this is a great example of how to uh, do this in the best way possible. And that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to write it up on Naked Security. Salt, the people who found the bug, they found it. They disclosed it responsibly. They worked with Expo, who fixed it literally within hours. So even though it was a bug, even though it was a coding mistake, that led to Salt saying, you know what, the Expo people were an absolute pleasure to work with. Then they went about getting a CVE, and then 
instead of going, hey, the bug's fixed now, and two days later, hey, we can make a big PR splash about it, they nevertheless set a date three months ahead when they would actually write up their findings and write up their very educational report. So instead of rushing it out for immediate PR purposes, in case they got scooped at the last minute, they not only reported this responsibly so it could be fixed before Crooks found it, and there's no evidence anyone had abused this vulnerability, they also then gave a bit of leeway for Expo to go out there and communicate with their customers. And then, of course, we talked a bit about this, uh, but ensure that your authentication code fails closed, that it doesn't just keep working if someone ignores or cancels it. But uh, the, the bigger issue here is to never assume that your own client-side code will be in control of the verification process. If you followed the exact process of the JavaScript code provided by Expo to take you through this OAuth process, you would have been fine. But if you avoided their code and actually just triggered the links with JavaScript of your own, including bypassing or cancelling the pop-up, then you won't. Bypassing your client code is the first thing that an attacker is going to think about. All right. And then last but not least, log out of web accounts when you aren't actively using them. That's a good advice all around. We say it all the time on the Naked Security podcast, and we have for many years. It's unpopular advice because it is rather inconvenient in the same way as telling people, hey, why not set your browser to clear all cookies on exit? If you think about it, in this particular case, let's say the login was happening via your Facebook account, OAuth via Facebook. If you were logged out of Facebook, then no matter what JavaScript treachery an attacker tried, killing off the Expo pop-up and all of that stuff, the authentication process with Facebook wouldn't succeed because Facebook would go, hey, this person's asking me to authenticate them. They're not currently logged in. So you would always and unavoidably see the Facebook login pop up at that point. You need to log in now. And that would give the subterfuge away immediately. Okay, very good. And our last story of the day, don't panic, but there's apparently a way to crack the master password for open source password manager KeyPass. But again, don't panic because it's a lot more complicated than it seems, Paul. You really got to have control of someone's machine. You do. If you want to track this down, it's CVE-2023-32784. It's a fascinating bug, and I wrote a sort of magnum opus style article on Naked Security about it, entitled That KeyPass Master Password Crack and What We Can Learn From It. So I won't spoil that article, which goes into C-type memory allocation, scripting language type memory allocation, and finally C-sharp or .NET managed strings, managed memory allocation by the system. But I'll just describe what the researcher in this case discovered. What they did is they went looking in the KeyPass code and in KeyPass memory dumps for evidence of how easy it might be to find the master password in memory, albeit temporarily. What if it's there minutes, hours, or days later? What if the master password is still lying around, maybe in your swap file on disk, even after you've rebooted your computer? So I set up KeyPass, and I gave myself a 16-character or uppercase password, so it would be easy to recognize if I found it in memory. And lo and behold, at no point did I ever find my master password lying around in memory. Not as an ASCII string, not as a Windows wide chart. UTF-16 string. Great. 
But <laughs> what this researcher noticed is that when you type your password in, in KeyPass, it puts up, I'll call it the Unicode blob, just to show you that, yes, he did press a key, and therefore how many characters you've typed in. So as you type in your password, you see the string blob, 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 and in my case, everything up to 16 blobs. Well, those blob strings don't seem like they'd be a security risk, so maybe they were just being left to the .NET runtime to manage as managed strings, where they might lie around in memory afterwards and not get cleaned up, because, hey, they're just blobs. So it turns out that if you do a memory dump of KeyPass, which gives you a whopping 250 megabytes of stuff, and you go looking for strings like blob blob, blob blob blob, and so on, any number of blobs, there's a chunk of memory, the memory dump, where you'll see two blobs, then three blobs, then four blobs, then five blobs, dot dot dot, and in my case, all the way up to 16 blobs. And then you'll just get this random collection of blobs that happen by mistake, if you like. In other words, just looking for those blob strings that don't give away your actual password characters will leak the length of your password. However, it gets even more interesting because what this researcher discovered that what's near to those blob strings in memory may be they're somehow tied to the individual characters that you type in the password. So if you go through the file, instead of just searching for two blobs, three blobs, four blobs more, if you search for a string of blobs followed by a character that you think is in the password. So in my case, I was just searching for the characters A to Z because I knew that was what was in the password. So I'm searching for any string of blobs followed by one ASCII character. Guess what happened, Doug? I get two blobs followed by the third character of my password three blobs, followed by the fourth character of my password, all the way up to 15 blobs, immediately followed by the 16th character in my password. Yeah, it's a wild visual in this article. I, I was, I'm kind of following <laughs> yeah. along, it's getting a little technical, and all of a sudden I just see, whoa, that looks like a password. It's basically as though the individual characters of your password are scattered liberally through memory. But it's just that in this case, the ones that represent the ASCII characters that were actually part of your password as you typed it in, it's like they've got luminescent dye attached to them. <laughs> and so these strings of blobs inadvertently act as a tagging mechanism to flag the characters in your password. And really, the moral of the story is that things can leak out in memory in ways that you simply never expected and that even a well-informed code reviewer might not notice. So it's a fascinating read, and it's a great reminder that writing secure code can be a lot harder than you think, and even more importantly, reviewing and quality assuring and testing secure code can be harder still, because you have to have eyes in the front, the back, and the sides of your head, and you have, really have to think like an attacker and try looking for leaky secrets absolutely everywhere you can. All right, check it out. It's on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And as the sun begins to set on our show, it's time to hear from one of our readers on the previous podcast. This is one of my favorite comments yet, Paul. Naked Security listener Chang comments, There, I've done it. After almost two years of binge listening, I finished listening to all of the Naked Security podcast episodes. I'm all caught up. I enjoyed it from the beginning, starting with the long-running Chet Chat, then to the UK crew, Oh No, It's Kim was next, then I finally reached the present day's 
this week in tech history. What a ride. Thank you, Chang. I can't believe you binged all the episodes, but uh, we do. Uh, well, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn. We very much appreciate it. Very much indeed, Doug. It's nice to know not only that people are listening, but that they're finding the podcasts useful and that it's helping them learn more about cybersecurity and just lift their game, even if it's only a little bit. Because I think, as I've said many times before, if we all lift our cybersecurity game a tiny little bit, then we do much more to keep the crooks at bay than if one or two companies, one or two organizations, one or two individuals put in a huge amount of effort, but the rest of us lag behind. Exactly. Well, thank you very much, Chang, for sending that in again. We really appreciate it. And if you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth reminding you, until next time, to stay, stay secure. secure.